Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4. Um, in this episode, I'm going to continue on. Um, the last episode, we talked about the, uh, you know, the origin and, and the fakery of, say, the Willards um, hiding behind, you know, they're having their stuff made somewhere else. So we're going to bring this a little bit close to home. We're going to use some examples, some names, particularly in the Philadelphia area. <laughs> and how they worked. So, I mean, less fakery, maybe this is the real world is, uh, you know, the business, the business of 18th century clock making in America. Let's, let's call it that. So, and uh, so in this episode, I'm going to explore several aspects of that connection with a view to developing a fuller and more accurate understanding of the business of clock making in the 18th century in America. So while there is uh, truth in the contention that some men, like uh, in the 18th century, trained to self-sufficiency, they did not practice their craft in a vacuum, though. Very important. Success in their chosen profession often depended on being quite efficient, responsive, and flexible, particularly as the marketplace changed and technical features evolved. And I must say... Um, being a horologist today, having to be extraordinarily flexible, um, sometimes pushing seven days a week, most of the day, seven days a week, working on clocks. Um, yeah, because you can't find people that want to work. You, I mean, that's, and that's not saying that you can't find someone who understands how a clock runs and how to diagnose the problem, but you have to have that. And someone with desire, passion for the field, the craft, the art, the science, and someone wants to see this continuing and, and has all those three things. And it's difficult to find an employee in such a status as that. So, 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 so again, success in their chosen profession often depended on being efficient, responsive, and flexible. So today, um, I have to be very flexible, uh, you know, you have people meet their different needs today. They have different work schedules. And, and you know, in this era of COVID, this whole clock thing has just gone through the roof. I mean, uh, you know, the amount of clocks is up four to five times that of a year ago or two years ago, rather. So, so but in the 18th century, though, this necessitated developing and using mercantile networks with like-minded individuals. And these really don't exist anymore. Um, the National Watch and Clock Museum, NAWCC, is our main clock or horological body for clocks and watches, and that's that's falling apart. And and you have people running it that don't care as much and haven't been around the block, you know, the older 60s and 70-somethings. And it's uh, really in disarray. They're running at half-staff and, and really misdirected. And the, the school has been closed now for 10 years, so... So we don't have those symbiotic relationships in which each continued according to his ability and drew in according to his own need. So it is, though, just such a network that Ephraim Clark, he was a clockmaker and watchmaker in Philadelphia, placed an advertisement on September 22, 1790, in the issue of the Federal Gazette stating that he had just received and had for sale English cast eight-day and 30-hour brass, 
split pinions and forged work, catgut and 30-hour clock lines, clock bells, clock and watch hands, clock and pinion wire, iron pins and pendulum wire, brass and steel, and on and on. Clock and watch arbors, pendulum spring wire. So, hence, in essence, Clark was letting his clock-making customers know he had in hand, supplied by his English correspondents, everything they might need to build clockworks. At the same time, Clark could, and, and I'm sure he did, utilize anything of this imported stock to fabricate clocks himself for householders if needed. Economic expediency deemed it so, using mass-produced parts from the English specialist Campbell described. Clark needed only to finish and assemble them, thereby reducing extended time and effort with commensurate assurance of an increased profit. So, Let's talk about another great maker, John Wood Jr., who, who lived from 1736 to 1793, also a clockmaker in Philadelphia. He did the same, advertising in May 5th of the 1773 issue of the Pennsylvania Gazette that he had just imported and had for sale cast clockwork with or without faces at about 10 pence per pound, corner and arch pieces, which we consider spandrels clock wheels and pinions, turned and cut, clock and watch hands, pinion wire, clock bells, catgut, finished clock faces, finished moon wheels, rolling moon wheels, forged clockwork, and related tools and equipment. In so doing, he documented the presence of English-made components, not only clocks bearing his name, but also those of his clock-making customers. English manufacturers of clockwork components actively sought the transatlantic business in which Clark, Wood, and others were just beginning to engage in. Once demand confirmed that the market was viable, probably during the second quarter of the 18th century, they devised pattern cards, which were wood or heavy paper or cardboard as we know it today, to which examples of the goods offered were wired. These were sent to prospective or existing clients who could use them to identify specific needs and place orders. However, pattern cards proved quite bulky and somewhat awkward as a long-distance marketing tool. So, they soon evolved into a trade catalog, loose-leaf or bound books, the pages of which were filled with printed images of available goods. John Wyke, clockmaker and watchmaker in Prescott and Liverpool, England, appears to have been one of the first, if not the first English entrepreneur to realize the advantages of marketing through trade catalogs. Following the successful insurance of his catalog of clockmakers' tools in about 1758, Metal workers and entrepreneurs throughout England's industrial midlands used a flood of catalogs also for their wares. The method proved ideal for cheaply, conveniently, and accurately marking wares to a large body of long-distance customers. So of the surviving base metalwork trade catalogs dating from the 18th century, few picture clock components, 
So this may be due to the fact that the base metalwork trade catalog illustrations are typically configured to help purchasers choose among variations of size, um, say butt hinges for, for instance, or a design of say cabinet handles. So such varieties were not relevant to clockworks, but even so, clock components were undoubtedly sold through the network in which trade catalogs figured so importantly. To wit, the title page of the General Brass Founders trade catalog published, probably in Birmingham, England, about 1777, states that the anonymous manufacturers behind its insurance had clock bells and clock work available for prospective purchasers, even though none are pictured in the pages. From this, it may be reasonably inferred that other General Brass Founders offered clockwork components, even though such work is not pictured on the pages of their catalogs. Specialist founders also issued trade catalogs. These sometimes pictured castings for clocks. One such catalog, circa 1797, from the manufacturing of an anonymous specialist who cast bells in Birmingham, devoted three of its 11 pages to those who used bells. The first pictures of existing bells differing sizes identified as 30-hour clock bells. Even though a clockmaker would have used only one such bell in a clock, the notation accompanying these groups states that they were available as a set and priced at two shillings, nine pence. The page following <coughs> the pictures in the catalog was a group of eight graduated bells, all smaller than the 30-hour examples, which would, therefore, ring at a higher tone. They are identified as eight-day clock bells and were also priced as a set or two shillings and nine pence. The third page pictures a range of 12 bells described as a set of chime bells. These, when nested, constituted the musical component of a clock. They are all smaller than the 30-hour and 8-day examples, but priced just about the same. So, one additional trade catalog offering serves to confirm such publications' role in the transatlantic trade of clock parts. This General Brass Founders Catalog was issued in about 1789 in Birmingham and consists of about 150 pages depicting a wide array of utilitarian and decorative brass objects, including cabinet handles, wall sconces, keyhole escutcheons, card table hinges, bed bolt covers, and tapered jacks. So interdispersed them are clock parts. So 13 pictures of brass pullion pins used in tall clocks to suspend weights. And if you look on page 66 of the catalog, it's completely devoted to parts for tall clocks and bracket clocks. Among the 19 objects pictured on that page are six different styles and sizes of clock corner pieces. A particular interest is number, say, 224, a single-piece cast composition of leafy scrolls centered by a human mask. Its notation states that it was offered as a four-piece set priced at one shilling nine pence. As implied earlier, catalogs like this were printed in quantity, usually anonymously, 
by English manufacturers and distributed widely to business correspondents. Those correspondents were, for the most part, hardware merchants and others who traded in their contents in all the major metropolitan areas, including Boston and Salem, Massachusetts, Providence and Newport, Rhode Island, New York City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Charleston, South Carolina. It might safely be inferred that an earlier copy of this catalog was owned by a hardware merchant in Newport, as evidenced by all the works in the tall case clock bearing the engraved signature of clockmaker James Waddy, who worked there during the 1740s. Its face employs clock corner pieces, for instance, number 224, as the spandrels, Wadi affixed two of them complete in the lower corners of the face and cut two of them to accommodate the silent strike and tides dial in the upper corners. Following English precedent, cast ornamental clock corner pieces or spandrels were commonly incorporated into the design of American clock faces during most of the 18th century. Thus, American clockmakers were a viable market for any brass founder that produced them. English brass founders, attuned to this vogue, made them in differing sizes to suit various needs and a variety of designs to accommodate changes in taste during the 18th century as fashion developed. One model that appears with frequency on clocks bearing the names of Philadelphia makers during the mid-18th century is pictured in one of the catalogs. It consists of a central reeded urn flanked on either side by a spread-winged bird, possibly the phoenix bird, or perhaps a dove. This grouping is set amid a symmetrical composition of architectural elements and leafy scrolls. The pictured example there bears the inscription, John Wood Sr., Philadelphia, engraved on an arc within the chapter ring. But any number of his fellow clockmakers used the same spandrel on both square dial and arch dial clocks, including Woodson John Jr., Edward Duffield, Peter Stretch, William Stretch, Thomas Stretch, David Rittenhouse, Joseph Wills, Jacob Godshalk, and Augustin Nesser. The sharing of components among competing catalogs, of which these are several examples, confirms the long-distance network that connected American clockmakers to British brass founders and to British clockmakers like, say, Thomas Wagstaff. A local trading nexus is also likely. In the absence of documentary material, it is not possible to know for certain whether aforementioned, say, Philadelphia clockmakers acquired the spandles for their clocks independently or from a common source. However, given the identical design and size of the spandrels, as well as the fact that these men all worked in Philadelphia at about the same time, they likely participated in a competitive and cooperative effort. That effort probably involved one individual importing the spandrels in quantity from an English founder and then selling or bartering them as needed to members of the Philadelphia clock-making community. As John Wood Jr.'s advertisement previously cited, lists corner and arched pieces. He is a candidate for such a role. Alternatively, 
the Philadelphia hardware merchant Samuel Roland Fisher could have served as the common source of these ornamental components in Philadelphia. Just as English brass founders supplied American clockmakers in East Coast cities with their needs, so, too, the latter served as a resource for inland clockmakers. An illustrative and intriguing insistence is seen in the face of a tall clock with the name of Jacob Graff engraved on it. Graff uh, was alive from 1729 to 1788, worked as a clockmaker in the borough of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, now Lebanon, and it's located in Lebanon County. It is situated about 80 miles north-northwest of Philadelphia. Its inhabitants, including clockmakers, looked at the port city for many of their needs. John Wood Jr. acknowledged the needs of those inland colleagues and understood his ability to supply them when he advertised in the May 7, 1790 issue of the Pennsylvania Packet that he had just imported an extensive number and variety of clock components and tools. He concluded his ad by stating that country workmen may be consistently supplied with the items he listed and a variety of other articles in the business of clock and watchmaking on reasonable terms. So I think we're going to stop here and we'll pick up with the next episode. And this will be a part one of episode four, season two. Thanks for listening.